Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us on this Arab Shabbat at uh, B'nai-shalom.tv. And I am Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and we thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week to share in the service, the Kiddush, the worship, and the Torah teaching as well. So from our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home. A couple of announcements that we have uh, to make this week. Uh, we hope everybody had a nice Thanksgiving, time with family and fellowship and with friends. Hope everybody had plenty of turkey and is uh, nice, stuffed, and full. Um, we are fast approaching our Hanukkah conference that will be December 7th and 8th that will take place here in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, we'd like to invite everybody to come who'd like to uh, join us for that. You have to re get registered for that. It, you register at HanukkahEvent.com. There is still registration open and available. Um, so we encourage you if you can join us for our Hanukkah conference. Hanukkah comes early this year. So we hope to see everybody there. Plenty of time for teaching, workshops, a Torah service on the Sabbath, as well as evening programs with worship and teaching as well. So we hope everybody can join us for that and have a wonderful time. Also, uh, before the year is up, registration for Shavuot, looking forward to next year, uh, is still open. The cost and the registration for Shavuot goes up after the end of the year. Um, so if you'd like to take advantage of the early bird discount, please get your family registered uh, for Shavuot. You go to ShavuotEvent.com to register for that. And so we hope to see everybody there, and we'll be in Dallas, Texas for that conference. Um, so we hope uh, to all the brethren that are in the North Dallas, North Texas area can join us for that. We also have a special donation going on right now till the end of the year as well. You can go to donationoffer.com and then you can give a donation of any amount and we'll send you two free DVD teachings for your donation. We hope that you get that in before the end of the year. Take advantage of the tax break. All the donations are tax deductible and we of course appreciate all of the donations and we hope to always be good stewards of the Lord's resources uh, in that way. So once again, thank you for joining us here on this Arab Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. Please join us now as we usher in the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Thank you. 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. (laughs) Husbands, let's bless our wives. (coughs) Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. (laughs) Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach, Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Baelim Adonai. Michamocha nedahar bachodesh Nohorat echilot Among the 
like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher natan lanu et derech, HaYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et HaShabbat, la'asot et HaShabbat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael othit le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et hashamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom hashavi shabbat v'inafash. All together, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, Bechol Levavcha, Uvkol Nashicha, Uvachol Meodecha. Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavecha. Veshinan tam lavenecha, vedepardabam beshiftecha, beyetecha, uvlechtecha, vederech ushakbika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totafolt binenecha, uketatam la mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Let's open with prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together with friends and family. Father, to come together and worship you as like-minded brethren, Father. That we would just come, that we would acknowledge what you've done in our lives, that we would put you first, Father. That we would love you with all of our heart, Father. Teach us those ways, Father. Let us love our neighbor, those here, those not, Father. Just teach us how to be what you want us to be, Father, as a community and as as believers, Father, we just thank you so much. How goodly. 
thy tents, O Jacob, thy tabernacle, Israel, how, how goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, thy tabernacle, Israel. And in thy great compassion, I will come into your house. There I will bow. There I will feel thy Oh, 
to the book of Genesis, chapter 32. Hold your finger at verse 3, where our Torah portion for this week will begin. As you open the Torah, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'chabanu mekol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Vayishlach, which comes from Genesis 32 at verse 3, where it says, Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau. At the story right now where we are in the Torah cycle, Jacob has now made a covenant with Laban. He has left Laban's house. He has acquired two wives and flocks after working for 20 years for his uncle. And he's now returning back to the land. The Lord has called him to get up from where he was and go back to the land of his family. We had a little bit of a conflict with our Uncle Laban uh, in the last Torah portion, where he, uh, it turns out that Rachel had taken one of Laban, her father's idols, and took it with her without Jacob knowing when 
when they fled from Laban's house. Laban then came to pursue them to find out where that idol was. Also, he was a little unhappy that Jacob had left without really giving him a chance to say goodbye, to kiss his two daughters, Leah and Rachel, uh, as they left. But, of course, Jacob was following the Lord. He also had much a lot of conflict with his uncle Laban. Uncle Laban changed his wages multiple times, caused him to work 14 years for two wives when he only intended to work seven years for one wife. And then when it came time to actually acquire anything for himself, any blessings for himself, he changed his wages multiple times when it came to acquiring the flocks. But through the Lord's provision, Jacob uh, gained a great deal of wealth and flocks, and he was able to establish himself as truly a leader amongst the community. And it was now time, God calling him, to return back to the land where his family came from. When we look at the life of Jacob, there's so many things that we can relate to when it comes to Jacob. He, though maybe it's not a perfect correlation, not, I don't know, very many men that are married to multiple wives. However, when you look at instant, individual instances of his life, there's always something that you can relate to. He always had a conflict with his brother, his twin brother, conflict going back to the womb, had kind of arguments. Anybody who ever grew up with a brother can probably understand the, uh, the frustration and the struggle that it is to gain the attention of the parents when you're always fighting with your brother. And when it's all said and done, his mother liked him more, but his father liked his brother more. And so anybody growing up in that sort of circumstance in their family structure can probably relate to some of those conflicts. Um, obviously, he got the blessing from his father. He had, the, again, more conflict with his brother. Then he also had conflict with his uncle. And he you could almost liken that unto if you've ever had issues with an employer um, that at work, you have a boss that maybe you don't like that he's not paying you enough or kind of makes you do more work than what you originally intended to do. That's exactly what Jacob had to deal with with his uncle Laban. And then he had his two wives, and which were sisters, and they had conflicts. And I know many men who are married to wives, and you have sometimes issues with your sister-in-law. And you got all these sort of things that are all, all different things that we can relate to in our day-to-day -day lives when you look at Jacob. He dealt with a whole lot of trials and tribulations and struggles in all of his life. But reading the story of his life, his testimony, we can take application in our own lives, perhaps, to, to that we can relate to maybe some of the struggles that he has. In the case of our tour portion this week, um, I wonder, I'll pose the question, have you ever been to an awkward family reunion? Where perhaps you get together with all the family, getting back together, and then you got, you know, somebody who maybe two brothers to, that really don't get along anymore. Or some other members of the family that don't have the best relationship. But here we are, we're having a family reunion, and you're expecting basically awkwardness to take place. I think we all have actually had that experience. I think there's one person or black sheep in every family that we might look to and probably pop it into your head right now thinking of the person that you'd like to actually avoid when it comes time for family holidays, whether it's Thanksgiving or the uh, winter holidays that you might celebrate with family. You're not looking forward to meeting certain people. Well, for Jacob, this was obviously his brother Esau. This is the same brother who threatened to kill him after he had received the blessing from his father, a blessing that was originally intended for his older brother Esau. 
And so the last word that we heard about Esau was that he was plotting to kill him. It was speculated that uh, Jacob had to flee in haste. He didn't have any possessions. He had to get away from his brother um, because he was seeking his life. Though Esau did always say that it's like whenever my our father dies, that's when he would take vengeance. Well, Isaac was still alive, which was a good thing. That's in the favor of Jacob here. His mother also said before he left that it's like when Esau's anger calms down, I will send messengers for you to get you back. Because his anger has calmed down and you can then return. Well, his mom never sent those messengers. Uh, so as far as she could tell, Esau's anger was still kindled against his brother. So Jacob, now being called by the Lord to come back to the land, he thought it might be best. Maybe I should let Esau, my brother, know that I'm on my way back. If he shows back up, he's with mom, he's with dad, and then suddenly he comes in from the field and sees his brother right there, is he might make a uh, rash decision and maybe attack his brother right then and there. Jacob's trying to think these things through, so he thought it best. Let's send some messengers. Let's go see how he's feeling about the subject. I go, Lord's called me to return, but I want to make sure that I can stay nice and safe. Now, I do have all these flocks. I have all these children, these wives. I would like to, you know, live in peace as I return back to the land. So Jacob sends these messengers, and he does that in the verse verse of our Torah portion here, where Jacob sent. Our title is Vayishlach, which means, and he sent. And he sends them to his brother Esau, that's in Seir, which is the country of Edom. Now, Seir is in the southern part, if you know the, the geography of the modern state of Israel, Seir would be all the way down south into the Negev and then a little east south of the Dead Sea. That's where we believe the land of Seir was. And so he's coming from Patamaran, which is in the north near where Syria is, and then where he makes covenant with Laban is in the mountains of Gilead, which is kind of in modern-day Jordan, north Jordan. He Jacob could have returned back to the land, into the land of Canaan, and he would have been still far enough north to where he wouldn't have actually run into his brother. But he sends the messengers anyways, and the messengers have to travel all the way to the south country to meet up with Esau. So he sends the messengers, and he says, you know, um, let me go ahead and read here the exact wording that he says. Speak thus to my lord Esau. He's giving a great deal of respect to his brother, wanting to entreat him to make sure he's not trying to lord anything over him because he doesn't want his anger to be kindled. So he will be very kind to him. And he says, thus says your, your servant Jacob. And he says this, I've dwelt with Laban. And stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants, and I have sent to tell you, my Lord, that I may find favor in your sight. Very kind words that Jacob is trying to send to his brother. Verse 6 The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and also he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided his people that were with him, the flocks, the herds, the camels, into two companies. All right, so he starts to get very, very worried here. So he sends this word. He's hoping that everything, he's trying to be very kind, but then he finds out Esau's already on his way, and he has 400 men with him. That's 400 men. Those are men armed for battle. That's not a welcoming party. That's not a bunch of little children and, uh, and you know, clowns and balloons and uh, entertainment. That's not what this party is. This is an army ready to slaughter the whole lot of them. What's very interesting is that the, the messengers return 
And he's already on his way to meet Jacob. Why is that? Well, if you go into the rabbinical sources, extra biblical texts, they will tell a story that Laban, you know, always a swindler, never, never the guy, the, the used car salesman type of uncle that always seems to have these bad dealings with, uh, with Jacob here. It turns out, according to these stories, that Laban sent messengers to Esau. You know, Laban, this is the guy who he felt like he was cheated. He felt that he was cheated because uh, Jacob got the stronger of the flocks. Uh, he took the daughters. He got all these sons. When he came in, he started bearing sons. Laban came from a house that didn't bear sons until Jacob was there. Laban didn't want Jacob to leave. And so he wanted to make sure that he could keep Jacob there. And so he was still unhappy that Jacob had left, even though they made covenant. At Galeed to not uh, be in conflict with one another. They set up a pillar and they said, I will not cross this boundary line to do, come to do you harm. And Jacob wouldn't do the same. And so they made a covenant with one another that they weren't going to do each other any harm. Well, Laban probably still was unhappy with the deal. So the story goes, he sent messengers to Esau. You see, these two guys, they could kind of relate to something here. You remember that guy, Jacob? You know, Jacob, the guy that stole your birthright blessing and stole stole your birthright when you were just wanting some soup and you were being sarcastic. And then he received the blessing from your father. You know, that guy. Yeah. He's also the guy that stole all my flocks and took my two daughters and then took my idol that I can't seem to find anywhere. And yeah, this guy, he's heading back your way. I just thought I'd let you know. So Laban may have sent these messengers. And Esau, that would have been what inflamed Esau even more to say, all right, Jacob's back at it again. He's not, He's the swindler. He's the one who's constantly taking what isn't his. And so Esau thinks he might actually come and do something about that. Now, I believe that is a breaking of the covenant Laban had with Jacob because obviously he sent those messengers and he knew, he knew Esau was going to come to do his brother harm. But nevertheless, that's one of the speculations of why Esau was already on his way and he had already rounded up 400 men to come and meet Jacob. So what we thought was Jacob was trying to do something that was going to be kind and entreat Esau. Turns out this conflict is still going on and we are in some trouble here. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And here we have the beginning of a greater prophecy and a pattern that ties to all the life of Israel after uh, after Jacob. Here, whenever there is a great amount of distress, what he does is he divides his company into two parties. He takes his sons, he takes his wives, he divides them into two companies, divides the flocks into two companies. Now, the strategy here makes perfect sense because you divide them and then you separate them far enough that then if one gets attacked, there is time enough for the other to flee. It's better to have half the company survive rather than to lose everyone if we're all camped in the same places. This is simple military strategy here if somebody was going to come and attack his camp. The greater prophecy is that Jacob, his family, will be divided throughout all of history. That there will be multiple camps. And we, even into the prophecies, we talk about the house of Judah and the house of Israel and how that they've been separated and divided and they've been driven apart over years and years of history only for the whole goal at some point in time for us to all be reunified back together again. See, that's what you want when you have a family. When you have a single company, you want to be, uh, everybody wants to be together. 
But sometimes for the sake of safety, we have to divide where we are so that the one can always stay protected. That's exactly what Israel has done throughout its history. It's come under attack many times over, gone into captivity, and there's been two houses of Israel that have been divided throughout all of history, probably for its own protection. Had all the whole house of Israel always, always been together, always been unified, then enemies would know exactly where to attack. But the thing that God's infinite wisdom is that he has divided his people scattered them throughout the world so that they might be preserved and be blessed because of it. We, of course, are looking forward to the end of age when we will all be reunified back together again. This is kind of the great story of all of Israel. This is what God's plan and purpose for all of Israel is. I've heard heard one teacher say um, that God is in the business of taking something that is one, dividing it into two, only to make it one again. That's kind of what he does. I mean, and that's the kind of the love story of every uh, every married couple is that they have the sometimes we describe about two people who are married and in love, call them soulmates, that they're one soul inhabiting two bodies. And it almost feels like they were together at one point in time. Then they were separated and then they were joined back together again. And it's an amazing, beautiful love story. Hollywood taps into this idea and this concept that every romantic comedy, that's basically act one, two and three of every romantic comedy. Guy gets girl, guy loses girl guy gets girl back that's the story that's compelling drama that we like to that makes the entire uh, movie worth watching that's the very story of all of israel that god has a plan to take israel that is one divided into two only to bring it back together again so that that reunification would become all that more sweet and wonderful and pleasant when that day actually comes this is basic this is a basic uh, concept here that throughout all of history obviously we're looking for a great reunification right now between Jacob and Esau um, but hope but unfortunately we have a great amount of conflict right now uh, between Esau what happens here is this is that there's kind of this um, the, this whole story of how Jacob is trying to separate his family he's trying to return back into the land he knows Esau is coming he's coming very soon he's on his way he's got 400 men and let me go ahead and read here uh, at let me start at verse 13 here and just continue on the story of how Jacob is uh, dealing with all of this information. So he lodged there the same night and he took, uh, took what came to his hand as a present to Esau, his brother. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels and, and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 fowls. This is the idea that Jacob gets here. He's try, again trying to come up with a way to appease his brother. So he comes up with this idea to put together a gift put together a gift for his brother Esau. He's going to entreat him with a present. He's hoping that his brother Esau, that his love language is gift-giving, so that he would respond very happily when certain gifts were presented to him. And he actually um, instructs all of his servants to actually do this in a, in a progressive way, as in send all of these gifts before Jacob and his family, so that then when Esau comes across a servant leading a whole bunch of flocks, then he comes and asks, he's like, who are you? He's all like, I'm a servant of Jacob. This and this flock is a gift for you. And that he would then come a little bit further and he'd find another gift. And so Jacob is trying to entreat his brother before he meets them. He's again trying to soften the blow and soften the anger that is kindled against him. 
So he plans all this out. He, he's trying to do this in the absolute best way possible. So he prepares all these things, but he's still very much in fear and in trepidation for his life. So he sets up the present, and then he lodges um, overnight. Then we now have a very interesting story about this interaction that Jacob has with another man, so to speak. Let me read now at verse 22. He arose that night, he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them over the brook, sent over what he had, and Jacob then was then left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun arose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore the children of Israel to this day do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Here we have a very interesting story here that many people have speculated for many, many years what exactly is going on here. We're talking about trying to get together and, and meet up with Esau again, and we hope everything's going to be great. Let's make some presents here, and let's try to make this a nice reunion. But it's almost like at that point we're forgetting about God. We're forgetting about the one who called Jacob to come back to the land. And so God has a very interesting way of reminding Jacob that he is here and present with him. So in the dark, he has this interesting wrestling match with what the scripture calls a man. Now, in my scripture here, every time I see the pronoun for man, it's capitalized because many of the translators and many uh, teachers have known and speculated for many, many years that this truly, this man was a representation of God, that this was wrestling with God. In fact, the, the uh, title of this entire section of this paragraph, according to my scripture, says wrestling with God, that how God at this time presented himself as a physical man and he struggled with Jacob. They wrestled. Now, I don't know what kind of wrestling this actually was, if this was Greco-Roman wrestling. I don't imagine it was, you know, WWE pro wrestling and somebody was slamming somebody off the top rope and atomic leg drop or some other uh, wrestling move like that. There was apparently some sort of heel grab that was uh, that was taking place right here where Jacob, who actually going back all the way to the womb, actually was kind of an expert wrestler, if you think about it. He was the one who struggled with his uh, brother in the womb, and he so much so he was able to prevail and, and grab onto the heel of his brother as uh, Esau was being born. And so he kind of has this skill for even his namesake, Yaakov, which means to grasp the heel. He actually has a little bit of skill in this area. So he grasped onto the heel of this guy. And so God, I guess, wanted to wrestle just overnight. But then the sun starts to rise and God's trying to get away. But Jacob, holding on, getting a nice uh, ankle lock going on here. He was able to prevail and hold on. Even after his hip was dislocated, he was able to continue to prevail and hold on. And he's pleading with this man to bless him. 
Now, I don't know if, about you, but if I was wrestling with somebody, I'm not really looking for that person to, to bless me. But I believe it was uh, that Jacob recognized what was going on here. He recognized what was going on here. He did want to know what the name of God was. And God said, no, you don't need to know my name. But Jacob did recognize this was a messenger from God or this was God himself. So he asks him to bless him. What an interesting blessing that it is. I'm going to go ahead and change your name. Change my name? Okay. What kind of blessing is that? Well, uh, one of the things that's very interesting when it comes to names is that when a name is usually given to you by somebody, usually given to you by your parents. And the giving of a name actually has, I believe, in spiritual principles, a kind of asserts a type of dominance over the thing or person that is named. That's why parents have authority over their children, because they give a name. This goes back very uh, interestingly enough, back to the judgment in the garden, when after the judgment upon the woman was that she was going to be um, submissive to her husband, the very next verse, Adam calls her Eve. He gives her a name immediately following that judgment that was put upon the woman. When a name is given... There's a there's a completely change there's a complete change of relationship going on here, and it's the same way it's and it's uh, applicable for certain uh, covenants as well. That's why a wife changes her name when she gets married to a man. It's part of the covenant relationship. And what's going on here is God is establishing a new layer to the covenant that He has with Jacob by changing His name. Remember, His name was given to Him by His parents. He grasped on the heel of His brother, and that's how He got His name. But God has another plan for Jacob. He has a plan, and he's going to call him Israel. This is also in our scripture the first time in uh, Genesis 32, verse 28, that we ever see the name Israel ever appear in our scripture. And it will appear in our scripture many more times after this, of course. And so the, what's very interesting about this name, first of all, the root meaning of it talks about how uh, El, Israel, El means God, and that um, Sarah means to uh, contend or to prevail or to um, compete uh, sometimes. And so that's the original roots of Israel to where it means contend with God or prevail with God. Now, I don't believe that it means that Jacob beat God or that he prevailed over God, but he was able to to strive with God. He was able to keep up or keep pace. And so that's one of the things, it's a very powerful name, that if somebody was a, is able to keep pace with God, that's a very honorable name. There's also the Hebrew word yeshar, which means upright, which we also believe is one of the roots of Israel. Also, another very fascinating thing about the Hebrew name Israel is this, is that inside the name and the letters of the name is the representation of every single one of the patriarchs and the matriarchs when we say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel is made up of five Hebrew letters, a Yod, a Sheen, a Resh, an Aleph, and a Lamed. And you can look at those letters, and all of those letters are the first letters of every name of all the patriarchs and matriarchs. Uh, the Yod represents Yitzhak and Yaakov, which is I Isaac and Jacob. The Shin represents Sarah. The uh, Resh represents Rebekah and Rachel. The Aleph represents Abraham, and the Lamed represents Leah. So when we say the God of Israel, we almost have an acronym here for he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rebekah, Rachel, and Leah, that this is the God we are talking about here. So it's a very cool name. 
in the fact that you can represent all the patriarchs and the matriarchs with the letters of the name Israel. When Jacob calls this place, he calls this place Peniel, for he saw God face to face. And so what, that's what that means is that at this location, he realizes that he had, the, he had an interaction with God. What is Jacob supposed to learn from this interaction? What is he supposed to learn? He's now injured. He was, if he was ever going to now have a conflict with Esau and he was going to actually have to go to war with his brother, he's now injured and he's now limping on his hips. So that could probably set him back if there actually was a fight that was coming later. And so what is he trying to teach Jacob? Well, what he's teaching here is that, look, Jacob, if you're able to prevail against the power of God, then why are you so afraid of this conflict with your brother Esau? It is God that had blessed him and told him, come back to your land. He's not going to be able to fulfill that promise if he's dead the second he crosses the border because his brother Esau came. Jacob has to be reminded at this point in time what the covenant with God means and why God, what God is really trying to teach him here. If you can prevail with God, then you can certainly prevail with men. One of the other interesting, very fascinating things when you go into the deeper study of all the text, um, there's the thing that is called Hebrew gematria, where each Hebrew letter represents a certain number. You add up all the letters of a word, and it represents a number, and sometimes you'll find interesting coincidences throughout all of Scripture. Now, I think a lot of people, especially Kabbalists, take this concept way too far, and they believe in all kinds of soothsaying and mysticism and all kinds of random things. I don't like to take it to that level. Level ever. What I do like to do is sometimes when a number is revealed that has interesting parallels to other parts of Scripture, it's coincidental, but it's also encouraging and it's very interesting to think about. This example shows up in the phrase panim al panim, which means face to face. When he says, I saw God face to face. If you add up the Hebrew letters of the Hebrew word panim, it equals 180. And it's very interesting when you think about that, panim means to face something. And it's also very interesting that when you're looking a certain direction, you are facing 180 degrees with your peripheral vision. And so face-to-face basically means one direction means you're facing 180. If you turn all the way around, then you're facing 360 degrees. And so that's a very interesting parallel when you come to just the gematria value of that word. But the total of that entire phrase, panim al panim, 180 times 2 and then al is 31. You add all those numbers up and the whole phrase equals 391. Why is that an important number? Well, 391 is also the gematria value of the name Yehoshua, which is Joshua, which is an allegory for the Messiah, for Yeshua. And so when we're talking about if we're connecting all these dots, as interesting as the argument might be, this is where you could look and see Yeshua, the Messiah, was present in this passage of Scripture. Whether we had to use some gematria to get there, that's, you know, neither here nor there. The fact that we can make that connection, though, you can connect Yeshua back to this passage, so much so that some have speculated that it was Yeshua himself who was represented in this story as the one that Jacob himself wrestled with. So, fascinating uh, story here. The lesson to learn, of course, is that with God... We should not have our fear in our dealings with our brethren or other uh, humans, especially when we have a covenant with God. We should always be looking to him for the resolution of all of our conflicts. So chapter 33 of Genesis continues on where Jacob, he lifts up his eyes. He comes home. He's got a new lease on life at this point in time. 
He just prevailed with God. He now no longer has the same fear he had before interacting with Esau. The story now goes like this. Now Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming with him, with, and were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, then Leah and her children behind, and then Rachel and Joseph last. And then he crossed over before them. He bowed himself to the ground to his servant seven times until he came near to his brother. Here, still entreating him with a great deal of respect. Esau runs up to meet him. He embraces him. He falls on his neck and kisses him. And they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children. He said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near. They and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah came near with her children and bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all of this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please. I have now found favor in your sight. Then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as that I have seen your face. And though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me, please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and finally Esau took it. What continues on here is Esau and Jacob, they, they, they have this reunification. It's still a little awkward. Still a little awkward. There's still 400 men armed for war standing around watching the whole thing go on. You still have this sort of awkward exchange that doesn't stop there because then what continues on, it says, uh, okay, let's all travel together. And Jacob's like, no, I'll just slow you down. You go on ahead. And he's like, no, I'll leave some men with you and we'll follow with you. And this is just that awkward family reunion situation where this entire conversation seems very, very awkward. Um, what has happened, though, is that there has been a change of heart in Esau. There has been a softening within his heart. What caused Esau's heart to be softened that he would not immediately take the life of his brother? There's lots of things and lots of uh, schools of thought on that. One, he may have remembered his father. His father Isaac was still alive. And that he did say out of his own mouth that he would not take or harm his brother until his father had passed away. Isaac was still alive. One, Two, did the gifts actually entreat him? Was he confused? Was he simply curious of what was going on? So then he was confused to not act in the way that he was hoping to against his brother Jacob, possibly. When he saw the women and the children, was he then softened in his heart to not cause him any harm? One other idea that I've uh, speculated on, he was walking with a limp because of the dislocation in his hip. Did he take pity on his brother, realizing that he was that he was wounded, that he was he wouldn't he wouldn't put up much of a fight? You got to remember, Esau he was a skilled hunter. He probably loved the the thrill of the hunt, the thrill of the kill. He loved a good challenge. And if Jacob was approaching himself as that he had this limp and that he was weakened, that Esau would then be like, I can't I can't do it now. I crave a good challenge. If that's the case, very interestingly enough, it's amazing how God wrestled with Jacob, dislocated his hip, seemed like it would cause him harm, only to be the very thing that preserved his life in the eyes of his brother. Possible. Very interesting speculation there. 
One of the other things that the um, rabbis have often said here, uh, and the scribes of Israel who have copied the Torah faithfully for many years, there is one of the famous jots and tittles here in this passage, and it's there on the word kissed, where it said Esau fell on his neck and kissed. And the scribes put two put, uh, dots above the Hebrew letters of that Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is neshak, which means also by its root to mean to kindle, not to, ki- to kindle passion, which is what you would think if you were thinking of a kiss, but it also is the kindling of anger that would cause somebody to be angry and wanting to do someone harm. And so you can see just in that one Hebrew word, there still was some conflict within Esau here that, yes, he kissed him, but there was still some anger kindling. Some have also speculated that the jots that are above those letters represents Esau's teeth, that he, in truth of fact, wanted to bite Jacob's neck rather than actually kiss him again there seems to have been some kind of miracle that has taken place that Esau's heart has been softened to welcome his brother back and that they would not be in conflict with one another and at this point in time in in the future even after Isaac dies Esau never came to seek the life of Jacob there was resolution enough to where Esau never did come to seek the life of Jacob again so, um, this is a miracle. And every time, if, like I said, going back to my original uh, analogy, if you've ever had one of those really awkward family reunions and everybody made it out alive, unscathed, and nobody, no punches were thrown, you might walk away from that being an absolute miracle of the holidays as well. So, what we have, once again, a miracle within the story of the Scripture. At the end of chapter 33, very interesting, questionable decision by Jacob going on here. Let me read this. Verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which was in the land of Canaan. And he came from Patamaran and he pitched his tent before the city and he brought, bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. There he erected an altar and he called the place El Elohe Israel, which means the mighty one of Israel. Okay, why is that? Why is that interesting? Why is that in our story here? If you remember when I talked about the story of Abraham and Lot, and I've speculated now for a couple of weeks that Lot himself was not supposed to go with Abraham because God gave a specific commandment to Abraham. He said, go into this country, get away from your family and then go dwell in this place. But then his nephew Lot tags along and nothing but heartache comes because of that decision. Let us now remember what is it the command that God gave to Jacob to return back to the land. What exactly did he say? God told Jacob, in fact, let's go ahead and let, let's go back. Let's not make any mistake here of exactly what was said. God here, this is the covenant be, that, that God spoke to Jacob before he left Laban's house. And he says, um, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. This is God speaking. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. Okay, so return to the land of your family. Why is Jacob stopping in Shechem? His family lived in Beersheba and also in, uh, in Hebron. And that's where his family is. We don't have this reunification of Isaac and Rebekah. You'd think there'd be a story here of Jacob coming back to the land, that he would come and he'd, you know, he'd fall on the neck of his mother and his father, and that they would bless them there, and they'd have a great feast, and that would be the wonderful family reunion that we're looking forward to. That's not what happens here. 
Because what happened, what follows here in chapter 34 of Genesis is once again another heartache that comes against one of our patriarchs here. This is the story that uh, the scripture calls the Dina incident. What happens is Dina, the one daughter of Jacob, she goes and she goes to spend some time with the daughters of the land, you know, just uh, hanging out with the, the Canaanites and the daughters of the land. And I don't know if it was like in modern day where, you know, girls like to go to the mall together or something like that. So I don't know what exactly what was going on here. But she goes and travels into the land. And then Shechem, the son of Hamor, the prince of this land and this country, he sees her and the scripture records that he took, took her and he laid with her by force and violated her, that he raped her. And that his soul was so attached to Dina. And what happens after that is then Shechem comes to Jacob and then he wants to marry the girl. Now, in ancient times, there was a different understanding of how you got married and that when someone laid with, when a male laid with a female, that they were then to be married. And that there was a, but there was a violation here that took place of Dina. I've also heard other uh, commentators speculate that Dina did not necessarily, that it's not necessarily that, uh, we don't find out what her opinion or feelings are on this whole matter is. But there's also some who've speculated that she also wanted to be married to Shechem as well. She was out, you know, trying to live her life. Again, we're in a place where they probably shouldn't have been in the first place had Jacob followed the, the command of the Lord perfectly. What happens here is this, is that there, there's an interaction here between the, this prince and with Jacob, and this prince Shechem wants to marry her, and he wants to find favor, and he now wants to do things right and correct and appropriately. And so what happens is they have this whole discussion here, and then what they do is this. Shechem and Hamor, the, the, lead, the rulers here of this, um, of this city and this land, they convince them that if they're going to be in covenant, with the family of Jacob and be married, intermarried through Dina, that they are to have to be circumcised. Now, apparently Shechem was so in love with Dina that he actually, that they agreed to this. And the king, King Hamor, he commanded all of his people of the, of the city to go and circumcise. All the men were all circumcised. Now, the, the compelling nature of the king to issue this degree decree for all of his men to be circumcised just for, for the sake of his son to marry this particular woman obviously is an amazing thing that they were willing to do this for the sake of this marriage and for the sake of this covenant what happens though is that two sons of jacob take it upon themselves and the sons are simeon and the sons are levi this is his second and third born and that they realize this is the, how we all got into this situation in the first place. This is a despicable thing. He lay with her by force, and now we're talking about being in covenant with them and marrying and forming this covenant and all these things. And so what they do on the third day, after all the men of the city are circumcised, is they go in with a couple of swords and they slay every male of the city. Now, for some, this is, uh, this is actually some sweet justice for somebody who raped a sister and the family comes and comes to her rescue and comes to her aid. And so on one hand, this is uh, very much a noble thing that the sons did. But what happens is Jacob, he's actually disappointed with Simeon and with Levi. 
So much so that when it comes time to bless his sons at the end of the book of Genesis, they don't receive as good a blessing as the other sons because they took this action upon themselves and they did these things. Because Jacob says, why have you done this? You've slain all these people. Now I've become odious to the people that that all the people of the land will know that we went and we killed this entire city and we're like that we can't be bargained with. We were in the process of talking about a covenant being made, and my sons went and killed all the men of the city. So this whole thing was, it's a conflict, it's a heartache, and it's like, is there really a right answer in this whole thing? Because Jacob, he's unhappy with his sons. The sons argue back to them and said, should they treat our sister like a harlot? And then the story ends there. That's the final verse of chapter 34, and you sit here and you wonder, what in the world is going on here? More trials, more tribulations in the life of Jacob. Two sons lose uh, lose out on a better blessing because of this whole incident here. All the men of the city are all killed. And what do we do? Now, they also plundered all of the wealth of the city. And so they uh, gained a whole lot of possessions here out of this whole story. When it's all said and done, you have to sit here and speculate. And you might read the scripture and say, Lord, why is that story in here? I believe it's one another instance where we can look and see. Did Jacob follow the command of the Lord exactly as he was supposed to? He was not supposed to dwell there in this place. He run into this problem. His daughter goes out and bad things happen. And you have this whole conflict when we don't follow the command of the Lord. Now, the scripture doesn't rebuke Jacob here. The scripture doesn't say that Jacob did uh, wrong in the eyes of the Lord. No specific verse says that. But that's why we have the Torah portions here for us to learn and glean from even the mistakes of our forefathers, especially because of the mistakes of our forefathers. In fact, when others have came, come and, and tread the ground before you, you then have the cheat sheet. You can learn from their mistakes so that you don't make those same mistakes. So the thing that I would learn not only going back from the example of Abraham and Lot, but the example of Jacob and Shechem is to follow what the Lord has said. If he says return to the land of your family, go be with your family. I was hoping to read an interaction between him and his father Isaac and with Rebecca and that this that would be a wonderful story to read. We don't have that re- recorded in our scripture because Jacob bought a parcel of land and thought he'd stop here when it doesn't seem like that was what the Lord commanded him to do. God is still in covenant with Jacob. There's no question of that. What happens then now in chapter 35 is God, Jacob returns back to the place of Bethel. Bethel, this is the place where he saw the ladder. He set up a pillar. He made covenant with the Lord there. And let me read. God says to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar to God who appeared to you. When you fled from the face of Esau, your brother, and Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods, which are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me on this day in the day of my distress and have been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, the earrings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under an oak tree which was by Shechem. This is after conquering the city, having all these foreign gods, this gold, all this wealth in their possessions. Jacob knows we have to get this out of our possession before we're going to bless the Lord. Great principle there, that the Lord doesn't like anything that is not of him to be mixed with the worship of him. 
We're not to have God, uh, idols in our closets or in our back pockets as we're coming to worship the Lord. So they take all this gold, and it says that Jacob buried it all there in a city near Shechem. I've always wondered... If archaeologists have tried to seek this treasure out in the land of Israel, in the area of Shechem, if they're looking for this great deal of wealth, maybe not because we want to resurrect some foreign gods, but because there probably was a lot of gold there. So I've always been curious if anybody, archaeologists, have looked specifically for that treasure. So they journey, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue Jacob. Remember that there might have been a conflict here. We kind of had an act of war between Jacob and this other city. But God's provision was that Jacob, that the other cities did not come to attack Jacob. And he came to Luz, that is, Bethel, the place that he called Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there. And he called the place El Bethel because God appeared with him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now an interesting story here. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under an oak tree. So the name of it was called Elon Behuth which means oak of weeping. Why do we have an interesting story here, a, a verse that t- describes Deborah, the nurse of Rebekah, his mother? In our scripture never records, actually, the death of Rebekah herself. What it is speculated is that this is the story that talks about how these two women, Deborah and Rebekah, were actually very closely associated with each other, that they were, say, best friends, and that they were so closely associated with each other that when one died, perhaps the other one did as well. So this is the allusion to, and all the rabbis have said about this verse, that this is the allusion to when Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, actually passed away, not just Deborah the nurse. Again, it's interesting and certain uh, it's an it's a question uh, worth studying. Why would the scripture record the death of Deborah but not the death of Rebecca? Uh, needless to say that this would have been a time obviously of of weeping, of mourning for Jacob. Jacob's now getting older and we are now finally finishing up some of the main stories that happen to Jacob in his life. God appears to Jacob again. When he came from Patamaran and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your, um, your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. See, this is when God actually, like, he wrestled with this man, and he says, Hey, your name's going to be Israel anymore. But at that point, it was like there was still some confusion. It was all in the dark. His name wasn't changed to Israel really at that time just based on the word of some man that he wrestled with what happens is is his name is changed when he comes to this place and the covenant is reaffirmed the god of bethel the god of jacob who when he met him there when he's had his dream this is the place where the covenant truly is taking shape and is uh coming to fruition so he called his name israel and god said to him i am god almighty be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body and the land which i gave to abraham and isaac i give it to you and to your descendants after you i give you this land then god went up from him in the place where he talked with them so jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked to him a pillar of stone he poured a drink offering on it he poured oil on it and jacob called the name of the place where god spoke with him bethel very interesting why he's naming the place bethel again if there was actually possibly two bethels which is actually one of the speculations that has happened that many torah teachers have thought about that because we in modern day we do have a city that is called bethel 
And we and it's been that been called that for a great number of years. And we believe that that is the place that perhaps Jacob called Bethel. But we also have the questionable the the place and the question where was he on Mount Moriah when he saw the ladder when he set up a pillar? He already set up a pillar at a place called Bethel. Why is this scripture say he's setting up another pillar and calling another place? Bethel. That's what leads us to speculate sometimes that perhaps there was two places that were called Bethel. The first one where he saw his ladder may have been Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Needless to say, he sets up a pillar. And again, the covenant with Jacob is being confirmed here by God at this place. We then have uh, the story beginning in verse 16, where we have the death of Rachel. Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, the one that he truly loved, that he fell in love with at first sight, the one that he very much desired to have bear children for him. She already bore Joseph, but did not bear very many other sons at all. And it turns out that she is uh, in labor once again. And this is where the final son, the 12th son of Jacob, will be born. The son by the name of Benjamin. The story goes that Rachel labored in childbirth. And she had a hard labor, verse 17. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will, be, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, because, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. This goes back to the story where Rachel, and I said this last week, that it's unfortunate that as far as I can determine, Rachel never loved Jacob as much as he loved Rachel. She always had some other motivation in mind, and she even stole an idol from her father's house, and she hid, uh, hid it, concealed it, and I even believe that she blamed her menstrual cycle on the reason why she couldn't get up from the saddle, and she was able to conceal it from her father, and I believe it was at that time that she cursed her womb. She became pregnant again. She was, uh, we have one more son that is now going to be born in the land, in the land of Canaan. And however, though, she will die in childbirth. Whatever complication that may have been, it's, it's sad and it's tragic. And you think about it for the sake of Jacob. Rachel was also sad because she named him Benoni, which means son of my sorrows. But Jacob changes his name and it's the only son that Jacob actually named, and he named him Benjamin, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So that he was going to get, grant honor to this youngest son because of his love that he had for Rachel. It's very interesting, fascinating if you think about it, that Benjamin being the only one that was named by Jacob, all the others were named by the mothers. Whenever a name is changed or where a num name is given has very interesting impl implications for the relationship with those people. So you can see that Jacob had a great deal of ownership for Benjamin, and he had a great deal of love for his youngest son, Benjamin. What happens after this? Now, um, I will say this also. Rachel was buried in the area of Bethlehem. You can still visit to this day in the land of Israel. You can go to Rachel's tomb, and where we believe that's where she was buried. Once again, she was not buried at Machpelah with the rest of the matriarchs of the patriarchs, that that honor was distinguished for Leah and not for Rachel. I also find it very interesting. It seems like Jacob is always setting up a pillar, setting up a stone, and, and setting this up to, to, to honor God or honor something. And it's 
it's interesting that he always seemed to be moving rocks anytime that he was interacting with these things. When he first met Rachel, perhaps he was reminded of the story of how he moved the stone off the mouth of the well the first time that he ever saw Rachel, and that that was almost like a bit of closure, that this final thing as he puts Rachel into the ground, the last thing he does is moves another stone to set it up as a pillar that it kind of ties everything back together. At the end of chapter 35, um, we have another a recounting of the sons of Jacob. And then we have the death of Isaac. Verse 27, it says this. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Like I said, Esau did not seek the life of Jacob again, even after his father died. It's very interesting when it comes to the life of Isaac, is that he lived longer than all of the other patriarchs. Yet we have the least amount of scripture written about him. It's also interesting to think how he was blind for so many years after uh, after his uh, he had blessed Jacob. He was blind for a great number of years after this, and then he lived to be 180 years. That uh, that ties back to the gematria value I told you again, panim, where it means face. That there's a tie in to the number of years of Isaac's life with that number as well. Our Torah portion um, concludes with all of Genesis chapter 36. Now, I'm not going to have the time to uh, go through all of this. Perhaps I'll make a note for next year to do a little bit more studying in this area. What we have is the family of Esau. We have all of his sons, all the wives that he married and where he dwelt. And there's a great deal of names. Now, I always believe that there is no idle name or word or number in all of Scripture. And that these names, through the studying of the life of Esau, may have ramifications or parallels to other parts of Scripture. I do believe this. We, we know that the descendants of Esau, that they became a great number of nations that go and continue even to this day where we believe that's where many of the Arabs in the Middle East all are descended from some of these families of Esau. God has a plan and a purpose for all of these people. We might sit here and wonder in the modern day, we have the conflict between um, between Islam and Judaism and between Arabs and the Jews, yet we all know that they all descend back from Abraham and the patriarchs and possibly from Esau and Ishmael and all God has a great plan for all of these people do we how do is this conflict going to end that we even have to this day no one knows or has the answer to that but it is clear to me reading this scripture that God has a plan and a purpose for them he has a plan and a purpose he recounts all the genealogy here of Esau in great detail in the same way that he did for Abraham his fathers and for all the descendants that will come. So there's a great mystery as to what God's plan and purpose for all of these families are. I believe there might be some sort of uh, pattern to, to prophecy what's going to happen in the future. But needless to say, there is a great amount of detail that explains that be, this family, even though it's not the ones who carry the scepter, the ones who do not carry the covenant with them or the birthright blessing that comes from Abraham, because of the sake of God's covenants, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, that he also remembers and he shows kindness on this, for the sake of his covenants to even these people, all of these people, and even to the Arabs that will live in the modern day today. 
Uh, what, how this conflict will all end, I do not know. But the Lord has a plan and a purpose in all of it. To conclude this Torah portion, it's a long Torah portion because we have all these listing of names of Esau. Very fascinating. If you, I know the way we get our chapters and our verse numbers, um, you know, have all been done basically because of modern scholars have basically assigned all of those things. But one last number that finds itself in our Torah portion here that sometimes is uh, that can be encouraging, it could be simply coincidental, is that this Torah portion contains exactly 153 verses of the Bible. That number is fascinating, of course, because 153 is the number of fish that the disciples caught, recorded in detail in the scripture, when the Messiah said, cast your nets out. 153. It also is the number that represents the phrase, sons of the living God. Believe you me when I believe God has a plan and a purpose to all of these stories, to all of these interactions. It's our job to learn from them, to read them, study them, and to know and put all of our trust in the Lord. Not in the trust of our own strength to, to, to cause us to survive or to cause us to, to um, overcome any certain circumstance. It's not, I don't believe it was the gifts that Jacob came up with to give to Esau that caused him to be delivered. It's not, whenever we have an idea for ourselves that we might think it's a good idea, hey, I'm going to go ahead and stop here at this place near Shechem where the sons of Hamor, I'm going to buy a plot of land, I'm going to spend some time here. If God told you to do something different, I would encourage you to do what the Lord has said. The Lord has a plan and a purpose to all of this. It's our job to follow that and to trust in him. He is the one that will deliver us through all trials and tribulations. And so the next time you find yourself perhaps in that awkward family reunion, pray to the Lord that everybody gets out safely and securely. The Lord will take care of all those things. And we don't have to always trust our own strength or our own wisdom or our own knowledge to deal with some of these circumstances. But just allow the Lord to continue to work in our lives. And I believe that's exactly the example that we can learn from our father Jacob. Amen? Amen. And, uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for the life of Jacob. We thank you for the teaching and instruction, all the examples and the stories of his testimony, Father. And Father, I pray that we would learn and glean from them, Lord. Father, there's so many interesting things to study, Father, and I would encourage all the people to um, get into the Bible, into their Bibles, Lord, to study your word, to draw out new, uh, new knowledge, new parallels, new stories, new lessons that can be taught, Father. I thank you for the opportunity that I have to share with what little I know that it might be encouraging to the brethren. But, Father, I pray that you would just reveal all of your words and your ways in the lives of all the brethren, Lord. May we continue to study your word that all knowledge comes from you, all good things come from you, Father. May we continue to just follow your words, your instructions alone. And it's not by our might or power, but it's by your power alone, Father, that we have life, that we have blessing, and that we have been called by you to be your people. We love you, we bless you, and thank you for all of these things. It's in your son Yeshua that we pray. Amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Fachai alam natabetocheinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten haTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen.
you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When the sun has set on a Friday night bringing peace into your home Families will gather all around saying yes but Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 a gift from God has put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in His hands so obey His commands and you will know peace Shalom